Hello, everybody. This is Austin Bridges welcoming you to the LL Research Law of One podcast, episode number 97. LL Research is a nonprofit dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community, and towards this end has two websites the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. I'm joined today by the usual suspects, Gary Bean and Jim McCarty, along with two guests, BJ Harden Jones and Aaron Merritt. In this podcast, we discuss spiritual topics through the lens of the law of one and our own personal experiences. We hope to only offer a resource and provide discussion, not to present ourselves as authorities in the final word on these subjects. Please exercise your utmost discernment while you listen to us ramble on. Many of the topics we discuss on the podcast come from the questions sent in by seekers. If you have a question or a topic you'd like for us to discuss, please send it in. You can email them to us at contact at llresearch.org or go to www.llresearch.org slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Austin, and this is the LL Law of One, LL Research Law of One podcast. Is uh, everybody here and ready to go? Ready. Ready. <laughs> All right. It sounds like the whole crew. Well, today we have two incredibly special guests. I'm joined by uh, BJ Harden-Jones and Aaron Merritt, who are founding members of the Asheville Law of One Study Group and members of the Anchor Circle of the Temple of the Open Heart, which is a recently organized collective of seekers in Asheville that incorporates some aspects of the Law of One into their seeking and their practice. And they're here today to help us with as sort of new type of format for the show. Um, it's not totally radical, but they are practicers of a work by Katie Byron known as, I believe, The Work. And we have noticed that this particular spiritual practice has uh, some similarities between the, the Law of One and The Work. And uh, we'd like to explore that and sort of see how the Law of One can relate to other sorts of practices that people can find and apply to their spiritual practice. So uh, BJ and Aaron, would you mind giving us a little bit of a background about your relationship with the first the law of one? Uh, tell us sort of uh, how you came to find it and how um, it is relevant in your life. Yeah, I'll let Aaron start with that. He came across it first. Yeah. Um... So I think it was in 2013 that I um, that I really got into studying the law of one, and um, I've been I've been kind of an independent seeker and uh, student of spirituality for a while now. And then when I came across the law of one, I just it um, it really grabbed my attention um, in a full way, and I I just dove right into it and. Um, it just deeply informed kind of, and, and in some ways organized my thinking about my spiritual journey. And um, as I was studying it, I, I just had the real strong sense that it was a part of my soul's purpose to help other seekers to connect with the material. Um, and so it took a few years for me to really digest the material enough to feel comfortable to uh, start organizing a weekly study group. Um, but that started, I believe in um, 2016, um, we started a weekly uh, group for people to come and be together in person and study the law of one. Um, and we've been doing that, I guess, for about five years now. We go through about a session per week 
and we read the material and discuss it. And um, we have a strong focus on um, how do we embody the philosophy that Ra teaches? How do we make it relevant to our lives? Um, and yeah, we try to share vulnerably about that and uh, lean into each other's experiences. And it's been, it's been a wonderful journey. Thanks so much, Aaron. You um, people, listeners may recognize Aaron from uh, previous episodes. We've had him on as a guest a couple of times, I believe. How about you, BJ? Um, yeah, so my relationship with the material began through Aaron um, reading. At night, we would we would lie in bed and he would pick up this book and tell me some things. Wait, oh, you have to hear this thing. And, and then, and then, um, and he would share and then I would just say, what, what are those words? What is that? <laughs> but then after a little while, um, I started to, to get a little bit more of it or Aaron would sort of explain what he grokked of, of Ra's words. Um, and then we started to, um, have an exchange. So I'm, I'm a active student of, Byron Katie, who is the creator of what's known as the work of Byron Katie. Um, and, um, and so Aaron would share with me something of Ra, and then I would say, oh my gosh, okay, so Katie says this, and then he would say, oh, okay, well, that relates to Ra says, let me flip back, and oh, this is what Ra has to say, and, and so we would just kind of go back and forth, and then we, we started to, to call that excited back and forth, Katie, Katie, rah, rah. And then um, after, after Aaron was, but, but I hadn't studied the material myself. It, it still seemed um, hard to grasp um, on my own. I wasn't drawn to picking up the material, but then Aaron was really interested in um, having like he was saying, having a study group, being able to sit down with people who were studying that material itself. Um, and, and I joined, we often do things together and there's a nice balance when we co-create. Um, so I began studying the material with, with the whole group when we started in the summer of 2016 um, and have been to almost every study group there's been and um yeah i just continue to deepen into an understanding of the material as aaron was sharing like through through my bodily experience like i'll often read the words and like oh that doesn't quite make sense like i can't logically grasp what's being shared and i'll i'll like still the mind and and like read the words again and just allow an impression, you know, to arise to, to like, to, to get sort of an osmosis of the meaning rather than sort of a linear rational understanding. And I think that's mostly how I approach the material is from that place. Thank you. That's a really interesting reflection on how the material can sort of be absorbed in different ways. Um, Gary, Jim, and I have been welcomed with open arms at a couple of the Law of One study group workshops, organized workshops and study groups, and um, we yeah. have been honored to be there. And it's such a unique group, I believe, 
in our knowledge, it's sort of the most regular longest running uh, study group that meets to discuss the law of one and it's such a unique and welcoming atmosphere and we really do uh, love you all. Mm -hmm. um, so you were mentioning that when you and Aaron would talk about the law of one, it would trigger these correlations between the law of one and the work of Byron Katie for you. And, you know, I found that the law of one has correlations to a lot of different types of spiritual systems in some ways. And it's one of the um, most useful ways for me to study the law of one is to like sort of find reflections and other things. And it kind of gives a fuller picture of both things that I uh, find. So um, could you tell us a little bit about sort of your relationship with uh, Byron Katie's work uh, and um, sort of just a brief general overview of, of what it is, where it comes from, and uh, how it's used and everything like that? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so um, I often like to draw a parallel between Byron Katie and Eckhart Tolle because they have similar sort of life stories and, and their friends um, and their, um, like what they're pointing to is really similar. Um, and so, and, and because a lot of people have heard of Eckhart Tolle, like he's more kind of more popularly known um, and they have a really similar story. Like they, they were um, um, successful on, on many levels you know, financially successful and, and they had a home and family and, you know, they were recognized, but they, but they both sort of spiraled down into this depression and rage and, um, and then, and then they, they had this really similar experience that was like this sort of pop moment where everything changed. Um, and they, they both described sort of waking up um, to a different experience of life. Um, yeah, so that for, for Katie, she, um, she usually goes by Katie, which is her middle name. Um, that was in the mid eighties and, um, and so her experience of waking up to this different experience, to this different sort of re experience of life, of reality, um, <clears throat> was instantaneous. And at the same time, the way she describes it, there was a lot of balancing that needed to happen. Um, so there were several years that she, yeah, there was a span of several years that she went through um, that was balancing the mind, um, that was like coming to see where the habits of mind weren't, weren't in balance with that new experience of reality. Um, and so, she would meditate every day and um and a lot of what she experienced sounds really similar to the way that Ra describes the balancing exercises um and so then she um she started to to be known like just sort of word got around that there's this woman who the way they called it at the time there was a they, they called her the woman who made friends with the wind um because she was living, I think, in Barstow, California, and it was really known for these strong desert winds that that were, you know, um, sort of infamous. And and she was known as the woman who made friends with that that 
you know, force. Um, and people just started coming to her house and like, you know, how can you help me? Like, what are you doing? I want to, I want to learn from you. And, um, and she, um, she says she didn't know what she had to offer them, but she knew that she had changed and whatever it was that she had access to, you know, was available for other people, but she didn't know how to share it. So she just started to sit with people. Um, and then through that process, um, the, the, what, what's known as the work was born. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a guided meditation is one way of looking at it. Um, it's broken down into four questions and then what's known as a turnaround. Um, and so it's a, it's a way of meditating on a, on a stressful moment in time. And then, um, you know, to one way that I experience in the Katie Katie rah rah kind of way, it's like find, meditating on that stressful moment and then finding love in that moment. Um, so yeah, that's an overview of the work. And then I came across it about 13 years ago and it was right after our son was born. He was only a couple months old. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of time for it right away, but then once he was about a year old, um, once I had a little more space for myself, I really just dove into it, um, and have, <laughs> I continue to dive into it almost daily to this day. Um, um, I'm often listening to podcasts with people doing the work or talking about the work or doing the work myself or sharing the work or facilitating someone. I mean, it just is the, the seemingly natural interest um, that, that I find is, um, it, it doesn't seem to end. <laughs> just, I just wake up in the morning wanting to do some more. Mm-hmm. And real briefly, just to understand a bit about how it's facilitated, um, you said that you do facilitate it for people. Is there sort of like a, a licensing process or can anybody kind of pick it up and facilitate it? Yeah, there is a licensing process. Um, you can become a certified facilitator. Um, and also um, the process itself is really simple. Like one of the things that Katie says is like, there's a card, a little, um, little sort of like three by five card that has all the questions on it. And if you carry that around, you can just hand it to someone and say, will you ask me these questions? Like, you know, just, it's really, it can be really simple if to just have someone there with you and read the questions and then you find your own answers. It is really helpful to have someone um, facilitate it and to, and to speak it out loud to, to help us um, remain in the meditation. Um, and although it, it can be done on your own as well. Okay. And um, Aaron, your own familiarity and experience with it, is it mostly through your uh, Katie Katie rah rah sessions or is it a little bit deeper than that? Um, it's a little deeper. I did the, I did an intensive um, nine day with retreat. Um, with Katie, and that's one of the main events that she um, she puts on. I think she does that twice a year, 
or at least was before the pandemic. And um, I went and ha had a chance to do that. And it was a life-changing experience for me. I had um, some of the deepest insights and deepest transformations on my own healing process for some of the, some pretty deep, um, you know, um, imbalances and distortions and uh, some pretty deep catalysts that uh, are here for me in this lifetime to work with. I got to make some real headway on through being in that uh, nine day program. And um, yeah, and I've been, to, ever since then, I've been a pr practitioner. I'm not quite as naturally inclined as BJ finds herself. My na natural inclination remains in metaphysical study. Um, but I do uh, practice the work regularly, the meditative uh, self-inquiry process of the work. And I'm, of course, incredibly blessed to um, share a home with BJ, who is just naturally attuned to it. And so once a week, she'll facilitate me in a process. And then, and then, um, and I also facilitate her. So we exchange facilitation, which keeps us, um, you know, attuned to the practice. And so, yeah, I've got a, about a weekly, um, at least weekly process of engaging the practice. And it's been, it's been a cornerstone of my own um, healing path and process of seeking balance in my life. Yeah, that's great. And getting the sense that um, the work, the Byron Katie's the work is sort of like, as we get into it, I think readers will, or listeners will sort of understand the correlations between the law of one. But, you know, Ra gives us so many um, ideas and sort of abstract practices. There's some literal practices, but there's not a lot of detail into like how to really get into the processing of catalyst and the balancing exercises are probably the most specific thing that they give. And even that's a little bit vague in how you people understand it. So sounds to me like the work is a way um, to really put the sort of balancing practices or finding love in the moment sort of into uh, a practice in your life in a regular way that is a little clearer and a little more guided. Yeah, <clears throat> that seems true. So um, I guess we can, uh, I'll open the floor real quick to see if uh, Gary and Jim have any reflections before we kind of get, get into it. Um, no, I was thinking, yeah, <laughs> go ahead, Gary. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm enjoying the ride for the moment. Uh, right. Carry on, please. Yes, me too. All right. So, um, BJ and Aaron, I saw you two uh, give a sort of presentation about this at uh, Homecoming one time. So, I know how much of a uh, well synthesized duo you are in talking about this. Um, if you could get into sort of more specifics about the work, like what are the steps and practices? And then, I guess, at any time, um, you know, uh, if there's a correlation to the law of one that you, either of you notice, um, uh, feel free to insert it. And then if uh, Gary, Jim, or me have any kind of reflections at any point in the way, we'll um, kind of cut in and see if we can synthesize these things. Yeah. Yeah, maybe BJ, you could just describe the, the process. Mm -hmm. And then um, I've got, maybe I could offer some comments about how it, how it correlates to yeah. balancing exercises that Ra teaches about. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I 
the the comment that that Ra makes about the mind must be known to itself, I think is really, in my experience, really central to the process of the work. Because the 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 mind and our contents of the mind, when our thoughts are believed, seem to be like part of the fabric of reality. Like when I believe a thought, I'm not aware that I'm thinking the thought. It just seems to be my experience. So in order to know the mind, it's like we have to see the difference between the meaning that we're applying to reality and reality itself. So part of the way that we do that is um, to, as I was saying before, find a stressful situation or a stressful thought. Um, and so a, a, just a simple one is um, like, this is a problem. So to help, to help you all and, and anyone who's listening um, in a later moment, I wanna invite you to find a specific moment when you were believing this is a problem. So it's sort of like an uh-oh moment um, in, in your life. And it could be just the, the tiniest little thing. So just see if you can find a moment in your life where there was like an uh-oh, some sort of resistance, like something's wrong, this is a problem. So that's, that's really the first part is to allow your, allow to come to mind a situation where there was some kind of a problem. And so then we anchor on that situation and that concept. So the concept is, this is a problem. And then the situation is the moment that that you were believing it. So for me, I see myself sitting on a couch with a friend and I hear, I hear something that she's saying and I feel this, uh-oh. So what happens is we anchor in that moment in time and we look to what we were believing. This is a problem or that's like one way of, of calling what might've been believed in that moment. And then you take it through the four step, the four questions and the turnaround. So the first question is, is it true? And what we're looking for is to get still and to allow the answer to arise from beyond the mind. Because it's like, if I answer that question, then yeah, of course it's true because it seemed to be true in that moment, I'm believing it. And so <clears throat> I'm looking for either a yes or a no and, and either question is, uh, either answer is correct. It's just which one is authentic for me in that moment. So I find stillness and allow my authentic answer to arise. And I invite you to follow along with your own inquiry. So in that moment, is it true that this is a problem? 
And what I find is no. And again, either answer yes or no is the correct answer. We're just looking for the authentic answer in your situation. And then if you answer no to number one, you can skip number two, although sometimes I like to go to number two anyway. And the second question is, can you absolutely know that it's true? So it's just a, a chance to look again. And also the, the rephrasing is like, it's like, do I know for sure? So it's a, it's a different way of looking at, at the same question, the same idea. Do I know for sure? So can you absolutely know it's true in that situation that this is a problem? And again, getting still and allowing the answer to arise. We're looking for a yes or a no. And so again, I have a no. And then the third question, we move beyond just a one word answer. We move more into what happens when that thought is believed. So this is like allowing the allowing that experience to be accentuated. It's like zooming in. What is that stress? What is that stressful moment and what begins to happen? So in that situation, so I'm seeing myself on the couch when I believe this is a problem. So again, the question is how do you react and what happens when you believe the thought? And so what often begins to happen is First, we'll, we'll feel it in our bodies. Like I feel constricted. I feel tension in my chest and my shoulders. My breath gets more shallow. I feel different energy in my body. Like, like maybe I'm, I, I wanna get up and move or I wanna like shrink back and hide so it can appear different ways. Like what begins to happen in the body? And often after we notice those sensations and emotions, then we begin to become aware of what else is going on in the mind. So as soon as I believe this is a problem, I've made that into a concept. And the way Katie says it is the mind's job is to prove that what it believes is true. So it's going to start to offer proof, evidence that this is a problem. And so the way that it does that is to give images of past and future. So I'll see images of me with this friend and oh, she did something like this before. And then there we are in the future and she's gonna do it again. And it's gonna be even bigger this time. And what am I gonna do? And, and so I begin to see this, this like rippling effect of past and future like splayed out in um, before me and behind me. And like the, the illusion um, of, of time is created in that moment. Like I exist in that past and future. And one of the ways that, that I think of that is like that, that is the illusion of the false self. As soon as I have these images that appear to be me in past and future, and I call that me, I'm going to experience that as stress and suffering and I need to be in control. 
and I lose track of the fact that I'm here on the couch. So that's a very common experience. This is what begins to happen as soon as the mind is believed. It's like we're, we experience the world of duality. Everything becomes split into separation, into past and future, into um, good and bad, into right and wrong. Um, and we experience that directly. And so then it's really helpful to notice with that influence, what just what begins to happen and how do I treat myself and how do I treat her? And do I, what am I able to do in that moment? What am I not able to do in that moment? Just experience all of the, the influence of the mind when the thought is believed. So all of that is the third question. And then the fourth question is, who would you be without the thought? So it's returning to that situation again, and I'm there on the couch. And in that situation, so it's not about replacing the thought with another thought. It's just finding the experience of the moment if the thought is not a variable. So who would you be without the thought? So it's like returning to that moment. And often what I experience is like all of that spun up identity and past and future just drops. And then I begin to see, you know, it's like I thought that her behavior or her words were the problem. And then there I am in that same situation and I experience her words and her behavior completely differently because I'm there. I'm not spinning out into past and future. And often so much more like, it's like so much energy is released. Like all of this energy was tied up in past and future. And, and then all of it's available to me again. And there I am and I, I'm reliving that moment and there's a different presence. And it's like I've reclaimed myself from that moment where, where I was sort of um, lost to myself before. And so it's like, what is your presence like? What is going on for you in that moment? What is your presence like? And so the, then the mind is able to begin to see the difference between its creation and reality itself. And what I have come to see is that the mind is a friend. And like it wants to know the truth. It wants to, um, it wants to, to be supportive and that's always what it is doing. It, it, it's supporting us. Like for instance, when I was in the third question, it was supporting me in believing that thought. It was just helping me with my own belief. And when I can still, still the mind and look with the mind and bring understanding to the mind, 
It's like the mind wants to catch up to reality as well. And so then the final step in the process is what's known as the turnarounds. And that's a way of experiencing the opposite of the original statement. So, so often it's like, I have all of this proof that this is a problem because my mind was giving me that and I've got that in spades. And so the turnarounds are like being able to return to that situation and, and, and pick up other information. What was it that I missed that I wasn't able to see? And often the turnarounds can be experienced as like receiving these nutrients that I didn't even know I was missing and, and like they fit into place um, and just like create this experience of, of completeness often. It's like, oh, wow, like I, I didn't even know that that was missing. So one turnaround for this is a problem is this isn't a problem. So returning to that situation and then just, just being open and how might it be true that in that situation, this isn't a problem and allowing the, the experience to show how that might be true. This isn't a problem. And so for me, the problem was being created by that past and future. And in reality, I was sitting with a friend. And she was sharing her experience. And in reality, that's a beautiful moment. And it seems like she's scared. And so it's, it's actually really beautiful. She trusts me. I'm honored with her transparency with her vulnerability. And another turnaround could be the opposite of problem, which is like, this is a good thing. This is a gift. And I see this is an opportunity for me to be a friend to her. This is an opportunity for me to learn more about myself and see where I project onto her and where I can show up for her better. You know, it reminds me of the, um, the prayer that Jem sh shared, you know, um, would I rather be consoled or to console? And I, I find that our true nature is really, what we want to do is console. And in that moment I can console, but I want, I, when I was confused, I wanted to be consoled. I didn't want her to be saying these things. I wanted her to, to be doing this thing that I wasn't even doing in that moment. And so finding where I can do that and be that. And then there's other ways to find the turnarounds. Um, and, and I could go into that more, but I think that's good for now. That gives the overview of the practice. Um, and then what I, what I often like to end with is just to, to reflect on everything that came to pass in the inquiry and just to let it all in because often we received so much more information and a different way of experiencing and to just be still with it and let it in.
And sometimes it informs us as to what there is to do next. You know, it's like, oh, I need to reach out to that friend. And, you know, maybe there's something that I need to say to finish that conversation that we had. Or, yeah, sometimes it, it lets us know, our, our inquiry lets us know where to go and what, what to do next. Yeah. So I'm happy to turn it over to Aaron now or Austin, if you have anything to share. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. I think even in this kind of setting, this podcast setting, it's a pretty apparent how powerful it can be applied in the right way. Um, yeah, Aaron, since you have the most experience of sort of working with this and with the law of one, I'm really interested to uh, hear your synthesis. Okay. Yeah. So the way that I, um, the way that I reinterpret the four questions in the turnaround, the, the arc of the work of this practice uh, through the lens of the law of one is like this. So the first two questions are very, very simple. Um, and in some ways they seem like, you know, it could be like, they might seem frivolous or something like, why would you ask such a simple question? But I think that the first two questions in this process is basically a tuning. So I think we, when we ask ourselves these two questions, it's like we're tuning ourselves in this meditative, this, you know, this little meditative moment of the practice, we're tuning ourselves to look again at the experience we had um, or the experience we're having in our mind and put a question mark on it. And that's a really profound gesture because often, well, in my experience anyway, and I think it's true for a lot of people, we tend to experience the world um, in, more of a, in more of a way that has a period at the end where we think we know, we think that the information that the mind gives us is, you know, is durable and accurate and is, is reality. And so opening the meditation here, it's like we, um, we replace the, the, the period with a question mark, which is a really profound gesture because it opens us up. It opens the mind, creates a bit of a spaciousness to then go deeper in looking back again at, the, at what it is that we're, we're seeking to understand more deeply. So one and two, we tune ourselves with the question mark. And then number three is, um, it's really kind of looking at the impact of when we believe the thought. And um, it's a way of allowing whatever distortions that we're holding to uh, magnify, to multiply, to get stronger. We're really allowing, um, whatever those elements of our thinking to become as big, as powerful, as strong as, as they want to. And in, uh, there's, a little, there's a little piece uh, from the raw material in session 104, where Ra says, it is the way of distortion that in order to balance a distortion, one must accentuate it. And so number three is that accentuates, really allowing the distortion to be, be as accentuated as it wants to, or as the mind wants it to. And this is really, really helpful. Uh, metaphysically, I think it's very helpful um, to allow, um, you know, some version of a complex of polarities that are held in our mind 
to really strengthen and get as strong as possible, which is what allows um, the balancing to take place, in my opinion, is we have to first, we're holding on to a distortion. We have a distortion alive within us, um, but before we can balance it, um, we have to give it its life, give it its full, you know, its full range of expression. And so number three is really giving the, the problem, the stressful thought, um, whatever it is that we're, is causing us, um, you know, suffering, we first let it get bigger. Um, and so number three is a safe container to do that. And then the fourth question, who would you be without the thought is, um, it's a, it's a way to then allow what I feel like is a fairly natural process that the mind kind of self balances or self corrects when we, um, you know, give, give it space. Now that the distortion has had its full life, we look again. And now that it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to prove itself to us so much. There's just, there's just more information available. Um, and there's almost this sort of, yeah, there's this sort of self-correcting process where the love that was there all along in the moment, all of a sudden becomes available. It becomes into focus. We just sit in meditation and we just look again and these amazing insights and, um, and you know, just like literally things we, we just weren't able to focus on kind of come into our view now, now that there's, now that there's space, now that the stressful thought has been given its full um, allowance, all this new information comes forward in our minds. And it really, it's a self-education process. This is where the mind comes to know itself and also where we're able to find love in the moment. Um, and often it becomes really apparent how much love actually is there. And in my experience doing this process, one of the things that I notice as a pattern is I become aware of the quality of light in my memory. You know, whatever was happening in the, in the moment I was experiencing that, um, I'm really focused in the past, in the moment, if I'm reflecting on a past experience, I'm just, I'm very myopic and I'm only able, only able to focus on a very few things. But in number four in meditation, I look back and I can see the quality of the light that was there. And I can, I can experience the, the compassion and the grace that was in the moment. Um, and some of that's some of my favorite, um, this experience of being in number four and the discovery process of seeing, finding the love in the moment is just profound. And it's just such a beautiful um, nourishing experience. And then the final portion, the, um, you know, looking for turnarounds is a way to very literally um, balance the, the polarity that we came into the inquiry with, into the meditation with, with its opposite. And, um, you know, as Ra refers to, like often when we do this process, the, they give some examples when they talk about the balancing exercises and the examples they give, they say are overly simplistic. So when we move through life, um, the, the tensions of the polarities that we're working with are often complexes of polarities. And so the turnarounds are a way of focusing on what's on the other end of the spectrum of this polarity. And we can just do that in a variety of ways. There's turning the, the you know, like when BJ was saying, this is a problem. So, so taking problem, what's the opposite of problem? Um, and if it was an emotion or if it was a, you know, there's all, all sorts of things that we can bring into the, to the work, but you just kind of, you just look at, you look for all the different ways of finding the opposite. And that, and those are all the different ways 
that we can look again and invite in the other end of the spectrum of the polarities that we weren't able to see before the meditation. Um, yeah, so that's my that's my sort of like brief overview and translation of how how this process correlates to the balancing exercises taught by Ra. Yeah, that's really excellent. Thank you so much. Um, hearing you and BJ talk about it, I think a central word or theme that Ra uses throughout the material that comes to mind is the idea of a catalyst. Um, and Jim, if you don't mind me using you as a bit of a backboard to like drill deeper down into some of these concepts, um, could you talk a little bit about Ra's use of the word catalyst and why they use the word catalyst and what catalyst is according to Ra? Well, my understanding of what Ra says is that catalyst is actually a neutral factor that we interpret in a certain way, probably because or possibly because of pre-incarnative choices. We have certain lessons to learn. And as we come to our experiences in our daily round of activities, if something occurs that catches our attention in a way that BJ was saying, oh, there's something wrong here, then there's probably something that we can use to grow and use that same basic technique that BJ and Aaron have been talking about to examine the catalyst, whatever it was, and to let it be the factor that takes over our experience. We, in the meditative state, again, it was what Ross suggested we should do at the end of the day too. So we can do this, you know, go through whatever happened to us uh, in one process. And then relive the experience and let it become um, even bigger than it was, however big it was, make it bigger, make it as big as you can make it so that you are accentuating that distortion that it would be able to make more of an impression in your total beingness, I believe is what was the idea. And then Ross suggested, I don't know if this is the equivalent of a turnaround, but they suggested the next thing is to allow the opposite of that experience, whether it was anger and uh, you're now trying to allow the acceptance or the love to come into the moment to become just as large as the anger was in the beginning so that eventually they're balanced and then what you do is you accept yourself for having both of these types of experiences in your being because you are a 360 degree being you are the creator you've got everything in you and by allowing these two experiences to be accepted you're giving uh, the creator a way to know itself you're giving yourself a way to know yourself and you're giving yourself a way to know the creator. So if you keep doing all of this uh, on a daily basis, then you become more of a balanced being that has the ability to allow the love light or the prana of the creator to flow more cleanly and clearly through your energy center so that you move higher and higher up the chakras. And this uh, eventually uh, this balance would supposedly allow you to contact intelligent infinity or the creator. And what fascinates me about your story about Byron Katie is that she had that experience first and then discovered how others perhaps could have it. Yeah, I believe that is, you know, what went on. Yeah. Yeah. And um, for me, 
discovering the law of one, I think the most centrally powerful thing I got from it, especially at first, was just simply in the term uh, catalyst itself, just looking at what the term means coming from like a scientific perspective, a catalyst is something you sort of introduce to, you know, a, a mixture or something to sort of produce an effect. And when I started looking at the experiences I was having in my life, not as just experiences, but as a possible catalyst to accelerate my spiritual growth, or in other words, like you might uh, say it, Jim, to better know myself or better to allow the creator to experience itself. Um, and that was sort of the most powerful thing for me from the material. And uh, what I'm getting from the work of Byron Katie is that um, this is sort of a way to really uh, work with what we experience as a catalyst. Um, I'm actually interested in the last thing you just said, Jim, that um, this seemed to happen to uh, Byron, Katie, uh, kind of randomly. And um, Gary, I'm going to call a reflection from you. Uh, you appreciate Eckhart Tolle, who I think uh, BJ um, referenced earlier, along with Ramana Maharshi. And I think the three things they have in common um, is they all experience this kind of randomly, this like random moment of uh, they they kind of got a shortcut and then turned back to share their um, their shortcut. Do you have any, this might be a curveball, do you have any idea why that would happen or what that process is like for these three individuals that can then like have this insight to share with us? I have my own theory or supposition and I think this question is one that has been uh, perennially debated in spiritual or even theological circles. Um, that being, is illumination or realization the result of self-effort and work and striving and intending and so forth? Or is it a gift of grace? you know, bestowed from above or from with, within. And I, I naturally bring the law of one to that discussion. And the universe that Ra describes is built upon the principle of free will. All motion, all cause and effect to the extent that there is cause and effect. Uh, you know, all, all transpirings in the universe are a function of free will on one level or another, ultimately all seeming individual wills being a fractal manifestation of the one will, the creator's will, which was to know and experience itself. So if that is indeed the case that free will is paramount and all is moving according to free will, then I would think that those who experience spontaneously seeming awakenings like Tole, Katie, Ramana um, have exercised will toward that end if not in this incarnation than a previous one my presumption is and it's you know, only conjecture that they have put some time in in previous incarnations in knowing and accept 
accepting the self and becoming the creator and then configured their present incarnation to transpire in a way whereby they would seem to be living normal earthly lives, not particularly in a state of active seeking until one day, whether at the end of a, a train of suffering or uh, seemingly or, or at random, they awaken. And in the case of Ramana Maharshi, so far as I'm aware of his biography, he was like 16 years old and had the experience of death coming on and something within him informed him just to lean into it. And uh, Tole, and I don't know Katie's story except via uh, uh, BJ, but it sounds like uh, they were similar in that they had a long period of depression and suffering. And then for Tole, it was as instantaneous as an evening or a night, you know, he went to sleep, uh, sleep's probably not the appropriate word, but um, it was nighttime, the suffering was so intense, he, I think he wanted to die and underwent this transformation, which I won't describe, and by next morning, his eyes saw an entirely new world, sounds and light, and the experience of being alive was radically, fundamentally different, and it sounds like uh, Katie Byron went through similar, but anyway, sorry, long-winded answer, that's a few of my thoughts there. No, that's really interesting. I've always sort of imagined, especially in third density, when we do work in previous lifetimes, it doesn't always necessarily immediately transfer to our next lifetime, but kind of, I guess, creates a groove that makes it easier to get into that groove when we're in the lifetime. So yeah, maybe these individuals had essentially made a really deep groove straight up to like self-realization in previous lifetimes and then the catalyst that they experienced um, basically pushed them into that groove in a moment. Um, I have a hypothesis I would like to share too. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, the experience that Abraham Lincoln went through that Ra teaches about where Abraham Lincoln um, was up against these pretty massive global forces and you know had a had a uh, a mission that he had undertook and then there was this really interesting phenomenon where um another soul there was this contract between abraham's uh, original soul and this other soul who um offered to come in and and pick up midlife stream uh and assist in the mission and somehow they were able to uh you know make that happen um, I, I have a I have a suspicion that something similar might have happened for Byron Katie, and I have also thought the same thing for for Eckhart Tolle. And one of the signatures of the experience of their stories is that there was this deep, deep despair in uh, Eckhart Tolle's case, and also in Byron Katie's case. She was just really at rock bottom in terms of um, self-loathing and and you know even the will to be to remain on the planet remain in the in the life experience and it feels to me like that would be the moment if there was to be such a transfer or a walk-in some people call it a walk-in phenomenon that would be the moment where uh that, that sort of transfer would be the most um available and um you know i don't i don't at all put this forward to take away from her you know from Brian katie's experience or from you know all the whatever led up to it from a from a evolutionary trans life standpoint, but I also, it just, it, it uh, something tingles in me when I imagine that it was a, it might've been a walk-in sort of scenario. It just feels like it has, has a possibility there. Yeah, that's a really interesting theory, especially given, like you were saying, these deep moments of despair 
um, in Abraham Lincoln's case, that was the trigger for the walk-in. So that could be a possible um, explanation. Um, uh, so turning a little bit more back to the work and sort of Byron Katie's work, um, there's a lot about, there's so much to explore here. We're definitely not going to have time to really dive as deep as we could, but um, there's a lot about sort of our mind and how we perceive ourselves in a moment and um, how much of that is an illusion. Uh, it brings to mind a particular quote from uh, the law of one uh, in 93.20 uh, Don's asking about one of the tarot cards and talking about the archetypes of the mind and essentially um, talking about the nature of the veil between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind being semi-permeable. And within Ra's response, they say, all that you perceive seems to be consciously perceived. This is not the correct supposition all that you perceive is perceived as catalyst unconsciously by the, shall we say time that the mind begins its appreciation of catalyst. The catalyst has been filtered through the veil. And in some cases, much is veiled in the most apparently clear perception. So when I was going through this process, as BJ was describing it, it made me think, um, about that raw quote and raw talks about the experience being filtered through the veil before we experience it we actually experience it as catalyst and i think another way of even saying that would be that it is then filtered by our distortions and by our sort of personality shell the the sort of illusory self that is made possible by the veil and so I would ask uh, BJ if you think that's sort of where Byron Katie is coming from is that, you know, in the moment we experience it and it's filtered through all of this stuff of our illusion, which isn't to say that stuff is um, bad, it's sort of what we're here to experience, but then we can turn back and look at that and sort of drill down to the essence of the experience and um, use that to have greater realization of what's underneath all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, very well put. Um, absolutely, that really resonates for me. Um, I, and I, I often experience the difference between being in number three, which is with the thought and number four, which is without the thought. Like what I said before was like past and future drops and like the meaning that I was making of the situation drops. And it also often feels to me like a parallel of the veil, you know, and I, I wonder about like how much correlation there is there like there's so much that I couldn't see when I'm believing the thought and I'm not experiencing love in the moment when I'm with the thought when when it when I'm attached you know when when that seems to be what's going on and then without the thought there's there's just this completely different um experience um and it and it I do feel this like yeah there's this semi-permeable like I I am in touch with a different way of experiencing and a different I like I, who I am is is less limited um and yeah I have a a quote from Katie that I'd like to read from her book a mind at home with itself um and and Aaron and I shared this quote when we came to homecoming a couple of years ago because it 
it also feels parallel to what Ra shared um, in, in the very beginning of the channeling before the, what they shared before there was even a question when they said, you're not part of a material universe, you're part of a thought, um, you're dancing thoughts. Um, and, and this quote from Katie feels really parallel to that. So she says, you are who you believe you are. Other people are for you who you believe they are. They can be nothing more than that. If you realize that the mind is one, that everyone and everything is your own projection, including you, you would understand that it's only yourself you're ever dealing with. You would end up loving yourself, loving every thought you think. When you love every thought, you love everything thoughts create. You love the whole world you have created. At first, the love that overflows in you seems to be about connecting with other people. And it's wonderful to feel intimately connected to every human being you meet. But then it becomes about mind connected to itself and only that. The ultimate love is the mind's love of itself. Mind joins with mind, all of mind without division or separation, all of it loved. Ultimately, I am all I can know. And what I come to know is that there is no such thing as I. Mind's love affair with itself is the great dance, the only dance. And for me, how that also ties in with what you were sharing, Austin, is like the, the piece that she was sharing in the beginning, you are who you believe you are. Other people are for you who you believe they, they are. That like everything we see is through this filter, as long as we still have this filter of, um, of self or of our interpretation of reality. And for me, the process of the work and the process of balancing is, is just continually receiving the catalyst and receiving the catalyst and welcoming it and, and taking it to be, this is one more piece that can be integrated. And, and like, as it's integrated, I step more and more into the kind universe it's like, it's, it's the mystical path. Like everything that's here, everything that shows up is here for me to wake me up rather than anything that ever happens is happening to me. It's all, it's all my creation to bring me back to myself, which is everything. Yeah, that, that really resonates. And that quote that you shared, I think really drives home the central theme that Ra also tried to drive home so many times in um, the aspect of love present in all of these processes and sort of love being the underlying distillation of what we get to in going through all of this. Um, and Jim, uh, Aaron and BJ, they both referenced a few times a quote from Ra where it talks about the moment containing love. Um, could you talk a little bit about when Ross said that and what you think they maybe meant by the moment containing love and why they said that? Well, they followed that by saying, this is the challenge of this illusion. 
for you to discover this. And it seems to me, just from my point of view, that the universe itself was made by the power of love distilling into light, which we see as the world around us, things, material. So there is a love that is the vibratory nature of all of the creation, including ourselves, including all the experiences we share with each other. There isn't anything but that. There is a lot of permutations or distortions of that that we see as other than love. But if we keep following any particular experience or catalyst that we have, there is the inevitable trail that leads back to the concept of love, uh, the power of love, the uh, joy of love, the reality of love, the action of love. And I uh, think that's the, that is the great challenge. And I think that Byron Katie found a way to meet that challenge. And I think the balancing exercises that Ra gave us are a way to meet that challenge. If we keep going far enough that uh, we will find that love is at the heart of everything because there isn't anything else other than love. There's just love in disguise. <laughs> I like that. It's hiding. Um, <laughs> yeah, then they, um, like you were saying, uh, Ra offered this as an exercise, essentially. And they said this was um, the most useful exercise uh, for us as well. And it does seem like Byron Katie has sort of made a way for that central exercise to be practiced uh, regularly. Um, we're, uh, time is running a bit short, so I'd like to sort of open the floor, I guess, first to you, Gary, just to see if you have any general reflections on um, what's been shared, any correlations you see, and then um, hopefully if we have time, just a couple of minutes near the end, people might be kind of curious about what we referenced in the Temple of the Open Heart and maybe just a quick insight into what's going on there. Um, but first, if you have any reflections, Gary. Oh my God, I definitely do, but there definitely also isn't time. Uh, I particularly- <laughs> Give us the snapshot. Keeps coming up for me is, is transcendence and the linkage between know yourself, accept yourself, become the creator, what Ra calls the disciplines of the personality and these four questions and how both offer a pathway um, among other things that have been described on this podcast to transcendence. But instead of reflecting on that, I would like to ask uh, BJ a question or two. However, I want to check in with you first, Austin, to see if you want to like reserve that for a later minute. No, go for it. All right. Uh, BJ, I'm curious, like what have been some of the biggest surprises for you as you've been engaging in this work? I think you said since 2013, I want to say. Um, it, for about 13 years. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah. What was that? 2007. Um, yeah. So what have been the biggest surprises? Let's see. Um, let's see. I think one thing that's really surprising to me continually is just how much I continue to be drawn to it and, and to, to listen to Katie and, and other people who are talking about the work and practicing the work. That's really surprising to me. And then also um, the way that my, my mind continues to be opened um, like I, I, 
I think that I'm a pretty open-minded person and yet like there's more and there's more and there's more opening. Um, and as I do that, and as I practice this work and then also teach and facilitate this work, it's like um, my, my mental rational understanding of what it is that's going on like falls away more and more. And like, it's more and more um, just being guided by the experience, which is beyond the mind to, um, to share and facilitate differently. Like that, that's, that's super fascinating to me that, that this thing that I've been studying and I, I think I would have like multiple master's degrees and PhDs in at this point, um, like I, there's this experience of the mind that's like, I don't even really understand it from the mind. And which isn't to say that I don't understand it, but I, but, but I understand it beyond the mind. And there's just this other like faculty of understanding and intelligence that I'm able to tap into that isn't personal, that isn't like mine. And I don't hold on to it. Um, it, it doesn't become stagnant or like fixed. It's always like fresh. It's always accessed right now, um, which is a really interesting experience. Thank you so much, BJ, for sharing that. Yeah, that's a cool question. Austin, I have another question, but I'll table it in uh, favor of proceeding forward. And then if there's time, I'll ask it. If not, no worries. Uh, no, go ahead and ask it. Actually, just a quick uh, reflection on what BJ said. She said that she's kept being surprised at how much more there is. Just reminded me of in the very first session, um, Ra said that we can assure you that there is no end to yourselves, your <laughs> understanding, and what you would call your journey of seeking or your perceptions of the creation. Yeah. So that was a cool reflection. But yeah, go ahead. Uh, feel free to ask your question. Uh, BJ, this is a tie-in to what was just asked and really... Uh, continues, I think, in the direction you were already headed. But first, let me say thank you for uh, being on this program. And thank you for walking us through the steps. I found that very helpful and much more immediate and potent than would be just like some an abstract reflection on it. Mm -hmm. And I also love the space around your words when you speak. So um, my question is, I'm curious as to given that this process helps one to recognize that they are not their thoughts, that um, they have a multiplicity of possibilities of different sorts of thoughts and stories arising. So it helps to foster a disidentification in my interpretation from thought uh, and to discover what is behind that thought, like you were describing the unlimited self or the love in the moment. Um, I'm curious as to what this process has done for you, or rather, I'm curious as to how you come to relate to the contents of your own consciousness, thanks to this process. Like, do you disbelieve your the thoughts and the narratives that arise in your mind more often, or do you approach them with more curiosity, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Um so yeah, so the, there'll still be this idea of I 
Like for instance, I was noticing it happening um, a few minutes ago after I shared something. Um, and then there was the thought that maybe what I had said didn't make sense. Um, and and there was th there was a, an experience of concern of like, oh gosh, I wonder, you know, I wonder about that. And then and so then I was reflecting on, you know, sort of this image of I that was being projected in the past. Um, and as soon as that was conscious within me that there was this I being projected in the past, um, the experience of concern just fell away on its own um, because that, that past self is not what I am. Um, like that, that was a projection. And so like sometimes my, my shorthand description of the work is coming to see the difference between thoughts and reality. So then it was like, okay, well that thought isn't reality right now. That isn't what I am. I can put an eye onto that image and call that me, but that isn't reality. Here I am. And, and then it was someone else was speaking. I believe it was Austin. Um, and here I am actually listening, not speaking. So then there was that awareness, but it doesn't mean that um, then that information necessarily gets um, ignored, you know, because then there was some, there was some ability to attach to um, the, the I there that, that wants to be understood, you know, so there's some content there and some um, identity, there's some, there's some stickiness to believe that I am, that I want to be understood and that that's important to me. So what happens for me now is like, when I can see those thoughts, like the suffering and the confusion about it drops, but the information is still there to be harvested and to be balanced, you know? So it's like, um, it, in, rather than, like I could just skip over that and, you know, in, a, in an experience of sort of bypassing or something that's like, oh, great, well, that's, that's not true. So let's move on. But there's still information for me there. And there's still like a doorway to more freedom and, and an experience, like it, any suffering that I have points me towards where I can experience even more love and um, more balance. Does that make sense? Perfect. It was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Austin. Yeah. Um, just like to give space to Jim, if you have any lingering thoughts or reflections to share about what we've been talking about. Well, it's been a wonderful experience, very illuminating. I'm so glad to hear that there are more aspects of the law of one available in the world around us and in people who are seeking and sharing. That's just, uh, you know, it's like uh, you discover it's in all the religions as well. It's in people's mystical philosophies. Uh, and now to have Byron Katie share it so succinctly and powerfully is very inspiring to me. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Ross said, they're here to share 
a slant on information that is always and ever the same. Um, so before we have just a couple minutes to go into the Temple of the Open Heart, is there any final concluding thoughts from either of you, BJ or Aaron, on uh, Byron Katie? Well, I'll just um, super briefly say that if uh, anyone's interested in learning more about um, uh, BJ's offering of the work and Phil's facilitating the work, uh, she does have a website. It's called stepintotruth.com. And I think she has a contact page there. So if anyone's interested in following up with her and maybe going deeper into the work, they can they can find that uh, on that website. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. So um, we've only got a couple minutes, but I have a feeling that people are a little interested in the Temple of the Open Heart. So if you have like a two minute snapshot, either of you into what is it and what are you doing? How about I'll start? Um, yeah, so the Temple of the Open Heart um, in a lot of ways was birthed out of our study group um, the, because for many weeks we've been and, and years we've been coming together um, and and it's been such a powerful experience for so many of us um, to to study the material and and just have this different way of understanding ourselves and being with each other um, in a process of healing and so what we wanted to do was to create a formal entity and we created a, a nonprofit church um, that is called the Temple of the Open Heart and our and our um, regular study groups are the weekly um, worship part of of our church um, and it's it's a free offering to that's open to the public um, and the purpose of the organization is positive evolution um, and the way that we mean that is, um, is from the material, is, is like on the positive path, the evolution of consciousness, aiming for 40 positive for the planet. And, and that's what we're all about and, and finding ways to um, support that evolution and accelerate that evolution. Um, and, and the temple also has a website that has um, a lot of what we're up to, um, and it's totoh.org, Temple of the Open Heart, T-O-T-O-H. Um, yeah, I think I'll start there and then feel free to share anything else. Yeah, for me, the one of the core impulses of, of creating an organization is to, um, yeah, just create a home for independent seekers on the positive path to empower the vision of a successful transition to fourth density positive. And um, we find that it, over the years, you know, our, our study group has uh, attracted um, uh, people who, you know, don't typically attend regular religious services as a part of a, a you know, a conventional religious uh, organization or, you know, different, uh, uh, churches and um, there's something so powerful about what churches provide and what spiritual community um, 
that can gather through a church can provide. And it seemed to us like people who are on more of an independent spiritual journey um, really yearn for that spiritual community. And so our intention was to create um, you know, an organization that could build um, the capacity to serve uh, through creating sacred gathering, opportunities for sacred gathering and for spiritual community outside of um, some of the conventional or traditional religious systems. Awesome. Thanks so much. And it's in um, the Temple of the Open Heart is uh, currently the stage, I would say, is sort of formative right now, right? It's like just beginning to blossom. Yeah. Yeah, we have, we are holding a vision to, um, to find land and to build a physical, you know, temple structure that would host a variety of um, spiritual um yeah, sacred gatherings and, and learnings and healing opportunities. And uh, we imagine it may, it may take, it may be a while before we um, can manifest that vision, but we're, we're plugging away over here. That's awesome. Thanks for all the, the great work. Um, so as we get wrapping, wrapping up near the end, uh, Gary, any final thoughts from you? Love you, PJ and Aaron. Thank you so much for uh, making time to be with us today. That's it for me. Yeah, thanks so much. And then Jim, do you have any uh, final words for our listeners? I do. I would just also like to say, Aaron, uh, PJ, we love you and so much. Uh, so glad you're here. Um, we are all a work in progress and we all make progress on our spiritual journeys when we continue to open our hearts in unconditional love to everyone we meet in this third density illusion. We want you, our listeners, to know that we love you all and hope that you've enjoyed our podcast today. May your work and your journey be blessed. You have been listening to LL Research's Law of One podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find more from LL Research at llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting our podcast. And a very big special thank you to uh, BJ and Aaron. It was an honor to have you on. It was uh, such a great conversation. We really enjoy any time that you all can join us. And if uh, any listeners have any question or topic that they'd like for us to discuss, uh, you can read the instructions at www.llresearch.org slash podcast. We love you all, and we will talk to you next time.